Welcome to another episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. Yes, it is early June 2018 at the time of this recording. God only knows when you're listening to it. But uh, I, uh, I'm Nate Larkin here, of course, with the real host of the Pirate Monk Podcast, joining us from across the continent in San Luis Obispo or Atascadero, California, Aaron Porter. Hey, Aaron. Good morning. Uh, hey, it's a big day in the Porter household, isn't it? It's huge. Isn't, oh, man. This is the first time you've experienced this. Uh, yes. Okay, tell this, us what's this, happening. This is graduation day for my oldest son. My wow. firstborn child will be yeah. walking the aisle and in a stupid-looking hat, and uh, he'll start a whole new phase of life that'll start moving him away from us. Man, uh, and he's a fine young man. You guys have done a great job with him. Uh, so, it was yeah, so proud. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I loved that the two of you came together to the last uh, Pirate Monk Recharge Weekend last fall, and to see how fully engaged he was with the community of men. He felt comfortable. You, uh, that's a that's a uh, huge marker to me yeah. of emotional and spiritual maturity. The way he hung out with the guys. And listened, interviewed a ton of people. Uh, yep, yep. Yeah, <laughs> he has he has a list of everybody he talked to, all their names, so that he wouldn't forget who those conversations were with, and that it would bring back. Oh yeah, we talked about those things, and he will regularly read the list to me. Do you remember oh, when man. we talked to? And then he just reads the list. <laughs> One of those people is our guest today. Oh so, yeah, that's pretty awesome. So, do you remember the first time your kids? graduated well you know i i got a jump on fatherhood in that i married a single mom and uh so became a husband and the father of an 11 year old simultaneously and so it was only seven or eight years later that david graduated from high school i gotta tell you i was an active addict at that point uh not a very good stepfather in all honesty uh, not that good of a father or husband either. Uh, active addiction will do that to you. Uh, I thank God for his kindness and protection and the way he is the father to the fatherless and has been faithful to my oldest son, uh, who has turned out to be a godly man and a, a great husband and father himself. So, uh, no, but I do remember just this aching sense of loss when uh, our daughter and then our second son uh, graduated and moved away. Uh, I hear other people, you know, throw parties, uh, get naked and run around the house and are just thrilled to death <laughs> uh, when, when it comes time to have the empty nest. For Allie and me, there was, was just, there was a lot of sadness connected with it. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's, I, I feel that. I feel that sense of grief, even though he's not going anywhere yet. He's still going to yeah. be at home uh, next year, going to school locally. Yeah. So it, I feel like we'll be eased towards it, but he's still talking about six to nine months when one of his friends comes back from YWAM, they're going to get an apartment together. He's been talking about that. And, you know, mm -hmm. it definitely hits that, uh, the, the pang part. Because yeah. I believe that you can run around naked in your house uh, anytime as long as the kids are at their friends. So I don't think, you know, it's not necessary <laughs> for my kids. I mean, not that I, not that I do, but I do. Uh, uh, but anyways, 
Yeah. yeah. So, so I'm, uh, boy, I don't know. It's so weird though. Cause it was such a big deal to me when I graduated and you know, it's, it was so monumental mm-hmm. the moment I'm done. And I think I went on a yeah. road trip with a friend immediately after that. And then a couple weeks after I came back from the road trip, I moved to Los Angeles. So it was really, that was a cutting point of me yeah. going off on my own. Yeah. So yeah, weird. Yeah. It, it, my father always communicated to us that the expectation was you'd leave home when you graduate. And I did. I mean, I left home at uh, high school graduation and never went back. Uh, really? And Just yeah. Like right after like the next week. Yeah, up. I was, yeah, I was gone. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a different world now. So how are things going for you and your preparations for leaving? Yeah. How, how's Allie feeling about, you know, you leaving her behind for a chunk of time? I asked her again yesterday about it because I'm getting concerned. How is she going to function without me for 12 entire days? And she uh, is actually very much looking forward to it. <laughs> oh, good. She's, she's looking forward to it. I don't know what this means, eating what she wants to eat. Apparently, she makes dietary choices based on my preferences that I'm not aware of, sacrifices <laughs> that I haven't recognized. Uh, so she's looking for, God only knows what she'll eat when I'm gone. Lots of onions and sardines and cold oatmeal and things like that, that I can't stand. Maybe, I don't know. Um, so, uh, Kristen and I will be in touch with Allie on probably on a daily basis. We use this same technology that you and I are using now. And so we'll be able to include her into the trip, uh, which it's hard to believe. Um, we're less than two weeks. I mean, shoot week from Saturday. And uh, and we hadn't planned it this way, but uh, Kristen and I will land in Dublin on Father's Day. Uh, yeah. So no no hard conversations. Those all have to be nice conversations on Ooh, Father's Day. Do you think I get a pass on Father's Day? I feel like you should. And then the shit will hit the fan on Monday. Yes. Okay. That's the day for fans and excrement, but not okay. Father's Day. That's not fair. Okay. Okay. Good. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I can't wait getting excited. And uh, yeah, like I said, we're we're heading off for two weeks in Lake Tahoe at the place that I grew up camping. Yeah. So it's uh, going to be just great to be there if I can just get new, get the tent trailer working. It's been sitting uh, for way too long. Tent trailers don't do well with that. So I don't know. Oh, Lots of preparations. <laughs> okay. So you've got a pop-up trailer? That- yes. Okay. Yeah but all the sides are rotten. It's like made. Oh yeah. Yeah. I think I'm just going to cut the sides off and buy a cheap like mosquito net and then just uh, like Velcro it to the sides and then hang canvas over it at night. So that's, that's how I think I'm going to repair the the tent. But if we have listeners that have any better ideas than that, (laughs) that's, that's clearly (laughs) my kind of idea. Oh man. I I think it'll be fine. Okay. Oh man. (laughs) God bless your wife. It's not oh, like man. We're look like hillbillies out there. No. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, yeah. I'm sure hey. I just hurt the engineer listener minds. Yeah. Hey, say, uh, we got a couple, a couple of uh, letters here that I'd like to read before we get to our guest. Uh, why don't we do that? We'll come back in a second, open the mailbag, and then uh, on to our conversation with Dave Bunker. We'll be right back. All right. Okay. Did the woman send in her letter to you? About the episode with... Okay. I got a reminder then. 
Okay. All right. And we are back in the Pirate Monk podcast and opening up the mailbag. Uh, I did hear quite a bit of feedback from our interview with Virginia. Uh, some of it came in the form of uh, letters and texts, others in phone calls and conversations. But here's one letter uh, that uh, worth reading, a little pushback, a little, little uh, clarification. Uh, hi, uh, Nate and Aaron. I love you guys. Love the podcast. I've learned a lot from you. You always challenge me to reject passivity and be more intentional. Uh, in episode 218, uh, Christian activists were chastised for being supportive of shutting down Backpage without fully understanding the impact that this would have on sex workers. As one of those Christian activists, I want to add some perspective to this topic. I acknowledge that Backpage may have been an important tool for sex workers. However, no discussion about Backpage is complete without addressing the topic of sex trafficking. Trafficking is a huge industry, even domestically, and focuses on minors. A 13-year-old girl or boy is not a sex worker. She or he is a victim. It is well documented that Backpage was primarily a marketplace for selling victims of trafficking. The Senate Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations produced an evidence that showed that Backpage was not only aware that minors were being trafficked on their site, they were active in facilitating it. They would coach sellers on how to word the ads in order to walk a thin line between making the ads provocative while maintaining a thin veil against liability and prosecution. Further, more than one parent has found their child being trafficked on Backpage and was rebuffed when they demanded that the ads be removed. These victims need justice and they need advocates. In the volunteer work that I do in this area, I'm always dismayed to find more women advocating for the more women advocating for these victims than men. I admit I'm a bit of a law, at a bit of a loss when it comes to how we bring justice for victims of sex trafficking without doing unintentional harm to adult sex workers. One of my concerns in this regard is to understand better how much of the current narrative on this topic is really coming from adult sex workers versus that which is coming from the pimps who've had a temporary wrench thrown into their business model. I'm not naive enough to think that shutting down Backpage solves the trafficking problem. It's a complex problem that requires a multifaceted solution, including reduction of demand. I honor you guys for being part of the demand reduction solution through the work you do on recovery. Again, thanks for the podcast and for being willing to hear feedback from listeners. Thanks, John. That comes from John McDermott. That that is great. I'm so glad he said that, because um, he, I mean, absolutely right. The the sex trafficking is very real and alive in the United States, and that is a whole separate thing. Um, so yeah, I don't. I didn't hear anything he said that I would disagree with. Yeah, me either. Me either. Yeah, good stuff. And 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 please, uh, in case. In case we made it sound like this, we are not against uh, anybody who is going to put their time and energy into being an advocate in those ways. Yes. Um, but it's it's always a good reminder 
to to think about okay what are what are the things we're not thinking of the unintended pieces and so that's that was our goal so advocates keep going you're awesome <laughs> and uh one other note here i thought i should read on air because it's addressed uh, directly to you oh for pete's sake yeah uh, <laughs> a title line on the email is thank you aaron for admitting you're an a-hole <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it says, hey, guys, I met you at Bear Trap Ranch a couple years back. Remember having an impression from previous podcasts that Aaron was a bit confrontational, a bit combative, and a bit against the grain is the way he comes across. I then commented as much to him at the retreat. Aaron, I believe you responded with something of the order that you like to speak plainly, and recipients of your comments always have the right to agree or disagree. I felt bad about bringing that fact up to him at the retreat ever since until Aaron self-proclaimed his a holishness <laughs> on episode 215. Oh. Granted, it was in response to Nate's calling him a sound guy, and he responded, I'm not a sound guy, I'm just an asshole. So anyway, <laughs> thank you, Aaron, for relieving me of this burden. Oh and that comes gosh. from Dan. Uh, Dan, I remember that conversation as you were walking up the steps to the cabin and I was walking down to breakfast and I uh, felt nothing but delight by, <laughs> by what you said. <laughs> so, so there you go. Please carry it no more, my brother. Uh, yeah. Man, doesn't that go into the, the weirdness of I have no idea how I am perceived in life? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I yeah, know what's yeah. in my head, but every once in a while you stop and go, "Wow, there, this is coming off differently, possibly than I think." Uh, but I am not going to change my role on this program because I feel like it is valuable. Because Nate's just too nice, so someone <laughs> has to be the asshole. <laughs> uh, all right. Hey, uh, speaking of nice, we have got uh, the quintessential nice guy. Although, I mean, he can be. Uh, you know, the iron fist in the velvet glove. It's not that he can't do confrontation, but he's one of the nicest guys I've known uh, with, a, with a huge pastor's heart. Uh, we'll be back with our guest, Dave Bunker, in just a moment here on the Pirate Monk Podcast. We sail tonight for Singapore where all is mad as hours here have fallen for a tawny more. Welcome back to the Pirate Monk Podcast and uh, a visit with this week's guest. Those of you who've read Samson Monks uh, know the name or should know the name Dave Bunker. He's the guy who, in my opinion, really made the first meeting in that way and was absolutely crucial to the birth and the early growth of the Samson Society. Even though I, 
uh, I think I'd shaken hands with Dave Bunker once very quickly before the meeting. I didn't know him when he walked in the room. He was the one guy I hadn't invited. He came at the invitation of somebody else. And uh, But uh, long about midpoint in the sharing in that very first meeting when everybody was being pretty careful, this big man from Chicago cannonballed into the deep end with authenticity and transparency and courage in a way that set the bar and communicated that this is not just another men's bull session. This is real stuff. Uh, Dave Bunker went on really to be a pastoral presence in the f- crucial early years, the first few years of the Samson Society here in Franklin, Tennessee. He is held uh, in the highest regard and with the deepest affection, not just by me, but and not just by Samson guys, but really by uh, a great many in the artist community here in Nashville and around the country. And we're privileged to have him back on the podcast. With Dave, us today. David, how do you feel about that introduction? That's like the longest introduction ever. And you are now the wizard, not the warlock, because that would be satanic, but wizards are Christian acceptable. How do you feel about that introduction? <laughs> It was a little out of body. I mean, I'm sitting here thinking like, well, that's that's really great if you only knew me. But uh, yeah, it was it was like, kind of like I was hearing about somebody else. But you know, suffice it to say, let's move on. Ah, <laughs> uh, but I, I meant every word of it. Oh yeah, I I I don't question that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, I love it. I, uh, at some point uh, in the evolution of Samson, David moved to Chicago where he took a position as the director of new media, I think, for Awana, a uh, job he held until very recently. Uh, he's making a move now to Memphis, and which I like because it's a little closer to Nashville. Uh, but in the years since he made the move to Chicago, he still has journeyed down to Nashville and Franklin on occasion, and I always look forward to the uh, an opportunity to sit down with him over a cup of coffee and get my reading assignments for the next few months, uh, get stimulated by his creative thoughts. He's uh, a guy who really is more comfortable outside the box and outside the lines than inside. Well, I, I don't know that that's true. You're comfortable inside the lines too. That's one of the things I love about you, Bunker. You can play inside or outside the lines. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, see, I can, I, add, I can add to the awkward aggrandizing overly long introduction to say just yesterday i didn't even know you were the guest today but just yesterday i brought you up in a counseling session uh concerning our long conversation with mondo on the drive to denver to get back to the airport so see you're coming up all over the place your wisdom just leaks out like a a leak (laughs) (laughs) well there you go um i like the I, yeah. I just love how uncomfortable you look with this. Let's go on to the topic yeah, yeah, yeah. again. It's just, this is too this much. This is fun. affirmation therapy, Dave. Get used yeah. to it. It's starting to get a little creepy here. <laughs> uh, hey, um, as you know, Dave, we've started virtual meetings uh, on the Samson Society site. Uh, by the way, a little plug for a brand new meeting. The European Buccaneers are up and running. I believe it's a Wednesday meeting. Gosh, I should double check and make sure. Uh, But if you are not on the North American continent, if you're on the European continent or anywhere on that side of the globe and you want something that more fits with your daily schedule, check out the European Buccaneers. Wow. Uh, And there there is a good exchange rate on Euro Bucks. So you should check (laughs) that out. (laughs) Yeah. 
Uh, I may even see if I can jump in on that meeting when I am in Europe in a couple of weeks. Okay. Um, and um, one of those new meetings is a pastors only meeting. Uh, that's going that's going quite well. Although uh, we, it's a little tough to get into the pastors' meeting, you have to know somebody. It seems to me uh, that pastors, for for practical reasons, if not uh, the righteous ones, are are in a strange situation when it comes to uh, getting honest with other people about uh, their weaknesses and failures. Myself, I've found that my weaknesses are actually an asset in ministry. Uh, they make me approachable and safe and a little bit more human. Uh, but for an awful lot of guys who are in professional ministry, men and women as well, I imagine, although I don't know that many women personally in ministry, um, the admission of a failure or even a weakness is uh, almost fatal. Now, you're a guy who is uh, perceived as being safe because you are safe. Uh, a lot of high profile. I, I imagine that you, like me, carry a lot, and Aaron, uh, carry secrets for a lot of people. Uh, you listen to confessions. Um, and I consider you a pastor to pastors and a pastor to artists and creatives. Now, what... What words of wisdom, admonition, warning do you have toward uh, Christians in the public eye? And then what would you say to the community at large about these people who we put in leadership positions? There's a huge, broad question. Yeah, could you restate that? Because I lost you there for a second in terms of um, restate the question again. Yeah, yeah. Boy, I don't even know if I can remember the question. Okay, so if... Uh, what would you say, you know, as somebody who is trusted by uh, Christian leaders in the public eye, uh, you are a safe person to make disclosures to, uh, you, you lead with weakness, you protect other people's confidences. Uh, what, what does the conversation need to look like? What, uh, yeah, shoot. Aaron, help me out. You're a better interviewer so, than I am, Aaron. So, Bunker, what what is the main reason it's so hard for people in the public eye in Christian ministry to be honest and disclose? What what are the main issues? Ah, there you, go. you know, I I think that we I think we have a a model of leadership that forces people to assume a degree of grandiosity. I see it in business. I see it in uh, religious areas where, you know, the people that are leading and they say that they're called, that there's some kind of pass that they get from the normal everyday run of the mill issues that people deal with. And, and I think that what I've seen in my own life is that the more that I am in denial about the part of my life, the shadow part that is still being sanctified, the, when I don't have people that speak into that, um, I, I'm getting dangerously close to having somebody else have to out me because I'm not really telling the truth. And we don't teach people that this is an inevitability. This is part of the human process of spiritual growth. It's part of sanctification. So what happens is, is that we encourage basically people to keep secrets. 
And who are they going to tell if there's no protocol for addressing how that how that spiritual growth takes place? I mean, you look at some of the major leaders right now that are being uh, outed, if you will, for behavior that was unbecoming. And when you look at some of that behavior, especially at its infancy stages, it, if there had been protocol, and by protocol I'm talking about trusted, guarded relationships and conversations that are honored, then other people can speak it to each other's lives as equals. But when you have a leadership uh, paradigm that allows somebody to be isolated, almost purposefully isolated, mm-hmm. you actually end up doing that person a great disservice because at some point, if they believe the hype, they're going to be, they're only going to be able to come to grips with their brokenness through major catastrophe. So it isn't whether it'll happen, it's when it'll happen and to what degree it's going to take you out. So there's, and there's something different to lose on both sides of the coin. The leader fears something to lose if they are honest and the people following the leader also fear they have something to lose if he's not all that the hype promised oh we if there's anything i see happening right now in our political life and i don't think this is a matter of party it's the impanelization of of groupthink you know the desire to have some leader that'll come in and fix everything so uh it to your point aaron it, it is a mutual a mutual sharing of denial. Wow. Um, I wonder if we could talk specifically, we talk a lot about pastors uh, on this podcast. I mean, that, it's a subject that comes up quite frequently. We don't talk a lot about worship leaders. Uh, I had a very cynical sponsor early on who said, you know, in this town, there's only two things you need to succeed in planting a church. You know, a good stand-up guy and a band, you know. Um, <laughs> was that Guido? <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was Mike O'Neill, actually. Oh, okay. Uh, um, uh, it is sometimes painful for me to watch, especially young worship leaders, um, lead from this place of, uh, shiny, holy, almost perfection. Uh, it's like they put on this, uh, it, I don't know exactly how to put it into words, but it just doesn't ring true to me. Uh, and especially now since I've seen con- the contrast of a worship leader who has owned his brokenness, is in process, is in community, and uh, and he's leading us out of that place. Uh, worship has a whole different feel. Yeah. Um, so, so and I so I ache I ache for the performing worship leader because I have been the performing preacher, and I know how empty that role is. And, and unsatisfying and how it leads to, to really this uh, contempt and self-hatred and despair when in my heart of hearts, I know that I'm not living up to the image. Can you talk, uh, and Aaron, I'm sure you have a lot to say about this too, because you have played both roles, worship leader and pastor. I've never really played the role of worship leader. 
Can you talk to us some about that, Dave? Well, um, I think the key word that you said that stuck out to me was performing. Yeah. And we, we all perform. You know, we perform in our daily lives, you know, with our, our persona. Uh, we fit in at work. We, we, you know, we wear certain clothes. We're white. We're black. We're Asian. And so we're prescribed a certain uh, role in life. And, and to the degree that we're cognizant of some of it, because I don't think you can be aware of all of it because it's too deeply embedded in our unconscious and in just the way humans as a, a tribe actually work. But when you, when you think about it, a worship leader would be someone who says, I'm, I'm going to talk to you authentically and sincerely about how much I love my wife and I'm going to do it for 45 minutes every Sunday. <laughs> well, that would be, that would be like, how do you sustain this? It's at some point it just becomes maudlin and overly emotional. Mm-hmm. Well, that same thing happens when we expect somebody to, um, lead the, lead the church, if you will, into this kind of ecstatic embodied experience where the posture of that person up in front appears to people to be very sincere and very honest. And I believe that a lot of these worship leaders, that is the desire of their heart. But unfortunately, the, the, the heart of mankind doesn't respond that way. You can't fake it. So the only way in some ways to enter in to the presence of God, if we read scripture correctly, is to humble ourselves so the question is, and I'm not sure I understand it, like how do you humble yourself in front of people when you're actually performing and they look at you as a performer and actually give you kudos for being good-looking, hot, a good guitar player, <laughs> yeah, sexy yeah, yeah. for Jesus and everything. It's like right. who came up with this model? It's almost a sit-and-duck for stupidity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and especially in our culture, you know, uh, few hundred years ago, if you were a musician or an actor, you were the dregs of society. You know, you, you were in a circus, basically. And now, all of a sudden, the expectation is, uh, I mean, it's just the celebrity. You're a pop celebrity within the church. And the fact that you can play an instrument and carry a tune, there is all of a sudden the assumption you have something to say about pastoring people towards Jesus. I mean, and it goes back, I even think of Keith Green's early days. I mean, he was promoting the Church of the Pharisee for his first years of ministry. He didn't know what he was talking about, but he had the stage. And so the assumption was he was right. So I, our culture seems to play into this uh, sticky church model deeply. Yeah, I think, I think um, now this is a touchy area I might go into, but I also think that... Um, I would consider myself a charismatic. I mean, I, I, we, somebody can over a cup of coffee. I can unpack what I think I mean by that. And I think that with the Jesus movement and, and the impact that uh, the counterculture had in the sixties on revivalism, there are so many good points that things about revival and, and the history of revival that you can point to that are really good. This is where, with Nate said earlier, I play it within the lines. I'm playing within the lines now. I'm saying, look, there's, there, there's so much good to point to. However, when, when a certain portion of Christendom, if you will, talks about ecstatic 
the, the ecstatic feelings, and I would call them like very emotional, physical feelings that you have about God, and you want those feelings. You, you equate those feelings with somehow proximity to God and actually God's voice speaking into your life. And I, I would say that when God speaks into our lives, there are times when, of course, he's going to affect our body and how we feel. In other words, I, that's the kind of we're humans with feelings and so on and so forth. But I, but I think it's very, um, it's very risky to equate a feeling with truth because it, there, it's a very fluid thing. And so what happens now in when worship circles, and this is why it's hard sometimes to see our shadow, is that when you have this experience where you're as a worship leader that is seemingly so um, ripe with God's presence and the feeling of God's presence, to actually then go back to your quote-unquote normal life and act as if like there's this other part of your life that's not all that ecstatic, why would you want to do that? You'd, you'd want to stay in that other state. And so I, I'm watching a group of people now sometimes use the posture of worship and the emotions that they feel as worship as actually, um, well, a deterrent from right. really knowing and getting closer to God because they now only want that feeling and they only encourage the, their, the congregation to have that feeling uh, and to your point earlier, Nate, there's sometimes when it's your brokenness and mourning and, and sadness. And I do see some churches that will actually allow people to mourn, allow people to repent, allow people to. But I, I see much more of this, what I call emotional enema. It's a, it's a fine line, though, because I was way on the other side when I was doing the worship seminary program out of Liberty years ago, where I was... I was involved in a church that had the the big band. Everybody was coming for the music. And so I got really anti-emotions. Like, this is just your, your weekly drug. And I wrote a paper on how this is just getting high. But that was wrong as well, because if God is all the things that I'm proclaiming in a group of people, I I should have an emotion about that. To not have any emotion would be to deny the truthfulness of that truth. So it becomes that hard. I mean, that's a, that's a hard line to walk where the honesty will demand emotions, but then the emotions can take over. So the, the head and the heart are kind of having to dance in that, aren't they? Yeah. Well, I agree with you. It's If there, if there was one way of doing it that, and that's that's the that goes back to the issue we talked earlier about about how do we how do worship leaders and pastors process their sanctification as it relates to how they present themselves to a congregation because in many ways they're living out their faith in front of people and and uh, most people don't that's not the case and that's why it's easier for a plumber to repent <laughs> right he doesn't have to do it in front of everybody mm -hmm. yeah. But you're saying they do have to do it at some point for this not to become a show, right? I mean, not in detail, but they have to be a repentant person in public to keep the yeah. pedestal from growing. And I think what, Nate, what you said earlier, maybe we should unpack that. It's, it's there. I think we, we intuitively know when we're around arrogance and we intuitively know when we're around humility. Mm -hmm. And how does humility, how does brokenness inform humility and what informs arrogance and cockiness? And um, I think that um, 
the protocol, and I'm calling protocol, the discipleship mechanisms for, for, for worship leaders. I, I don't see it being sometimes even mentioned. It's much more like, what's your song set? You know, um, look how the audience responded. Isn't it really good? And so a lot of times you, you see these guys go through the church like water through a sieve. Mm-hmm. because they don't last long for that simple reason because they're being used in many ways for very utilitarian purposes. You said it earlier, uh, Aaron, you know, just get up there, do your set, play your music and make it happen. What is yeah. it that we're making happen? Yeah. You know, uh, I, I got a confession to make. I, you know, my years of active addiction in the church, um, I, I very often sang in the worship team. I uh, can't play an instrument, but I, I got a decent voice and can sometimes harmonize. Uh, or, or even if I was in the congregation, um, I could. I, I loved going into that ecstatic state. Uh, I was in uh, either charismatic churches or or highly emotional churches at the time, and um, and that was a part of my. Uh, that was a major part of the behavior of my religious persona mm-hmm. in those days. Yeah. As a result, I struggle today in, uh, in worship services. I really do because in my mind that uh, ecstatic state is paired with, uh, you know, hypocrisy for me or, 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 You'll notice that uh, Samson meetings, we don't, uh, you know, a lot of Christian, there's there's this idea, if you're going to have a Christian meeting, it has to start with singing. We break that pattern in Samson. We don't start with singing. And when I'm doing a men's retreat, I'm doing for another church. If the church is organized, usually there will be a worship band, and we're going to start with worship. Where I have uh, some input into the process, I discourage starting that way because I suspect that I'm not alone. And for some guys, starting with singing is going to kick them into their religious persona, and it's going to make it harder for them to get honest and be real in the room. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, the very best worship experiences that I've had in the last 20 years have been at the end of a weekend, and they are not highly produced. Uh, and we now all know each other a whole lot better than we did at the beginning of the weekend. Uh, I have w- brought more of my shadow into the light. It just seems a whole lot more authentic. And then because it becomes a response to who God is and what he's done and what he's doing in and around us. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not, and putting it on the front end, it seems like, yeah. So, so I kind of, uh, Sometimes I have a negative reaction to the worship, especially the hype worship at the beginning of a service. I struggle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's a point that you make about um, when we're ready to actually worship. And so what is worship? Right. Yeah. And if, and if we're making worship just an ecstatic feeling, it's not that it doesn't have, like Aaron said, it does have an accompanying feeling, and that feeling can be very authentic. <laughs> But I know that um, given the holiness, the nature of God's holiness, and I, given the nature of my own brokenness, uh, if I'm going to really worship God for who God is, I need to clarify that difference. 
<laughs> at some point. Now, I don't think it has to always happen where it's some kind of, oh, gee, I'm a scumbag for God. Now, now I can really authentically worship. But it, but it is at times when you're in a, in a public setting where you're watching other people respond a certain way and then you start to feel like, I, I feel guilty. I can't go there. I don't know what I, I should be feeling right now, but that person's feeling. And that's, that's always the danger in some ways of public worship. But then take that and make it the person who's leading in public worship. Right. Yeah, it, it is a much deeper challenge to do that with authenticity. So then we have to unpack, well, what does that mean to, to authentically worship God? What does that look like? Well, and we're, we're conflating worship and music and right. confusing the two as well. I mean, biblical worship is, is not just about singing. Heck, the first nine chapters of Leviticus was God's worship manual to the Jewish people, and there was no singing involved. So mm -hmm. I think that becomes a, a dangerous confusion. Yeah, you, that's a really good point because it, it's interesting the return to a lot of liturgy that makes worship much more broad in its expressiveness because of the church calendar, because of the nature of the breadth and depth of worship in Scripture. I, I agree with that. It's, it's just interesting how uh, some people, though, do still equate worship and singing. Right. Mm -hmm. So, Nate, I, I, I want to push back slightly. Uh, not that you're wrong, but I think there, there, can, be, there, there can be a purpose. Okay, for me, singing is liturgy for uh, non-traditional evangelicals. We're mm -hmm. just repeating words, repeating prayers that are supposed to be applying to my heart. So I think when there's music before something, if the purpose is I'm preparing my heart to say yes to whatever I'm about to hear God say to me, I'm preparing mm -hmm. my heart to surrender because I know the Holy Spirit's going to take me somewhere and I might not want to go there. So I'm going to prepare for a moment. I think if there's a purpose to it other than, hey, we got to fill the time between when the late people are uh, straggling into the church. Yeah. We don't want to start the sermon too soon. Not everybody's here yet. If there's a bigger purpose, then that's fine. But the leader has to actually know what that purpose is and help explain that to people. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I'm going to go back here just to um, the lack of I, – I, I used the word protocol. I, you know, recently uh, – at a church that I'm, you know, historically uh, a part of and have at least been in touch with is their pastor um, has, has come into some, uh, it's hard times and the church is trying to interpret a lot of things. And I'm not trying to be vague to be vague. I'm just, I, I just don't feel qualified to articulate it with clarity, but let's just say it's, it's a leader who's in the process of, of um, talking about and trying to clear uh, what happened? What happened? And and I began to realize that in New Adam and in in Samson that there was a verbiage and a liturgy for entering into relationship with other people that allowed it to be safe to talk about um, the parts of my life that needed to be restored, mm -hmm. and and that in these other cases uh, there wasn't any protocol, so uh, things could go on for a long, long time. And then when somebody did speak about it. Everybody had a different perspective because there wasn't a way that we decided 
that this would be presented. So, and I've seen it happen with Samson Group and, and New Adam, where if somebody came to me and said, you know, Aaron, and they'd start talking about Aaron, and I'd be like, well, uh, have you talked to Aaron about this? And it's like, well, no. It's just like, well, I don't really feel comfortable. I, I, I think you should talk to Aaron, and that's your that you should start there. And what I'm, I'm realizing is someone might say, well, what does that have to do with, with purity or sanctification? Well, what I've seen it is that it allows for people then to have a consistency about, especially those in leadership, about how then do I open up my life to other people such that it's safe and it's honored. And uh, that restoration is really the key rather than I'm trying to attack another person or pull down another person. And I think the church is going to have to address how safe and consistently healing are the conversations that we have with one another. And are they efficacious towards, towards wholeness? And um, my experience is, quite frankly, most of them aren't because we don't really know what to talk about and how to honor it. And then we don't have anything to offer to a person in a sense of like, okay, based on what you told me, here's what I would say you should think and pray about. And here's an opportunity if you'd like it. And uh, I, therefore, I'm getting more and more where uh, I feel for leaders because they're like, well, now what do I do? I've, I've, I've admitted this. Now, where do I get help? So that's, mm-hmm. that's what you're talking about. There needs to be a protocol of, of consistency. This is how that's going to go down and to be explicit about that. Yeah. And have it be common parlance too, so that when a person uh, is ready, because I've seen people who are ready for restoration and wholeness, but the church isn't ready to restore them Mm because nobody really knows what to do. Right. So they just dangle in the wind or uh, to your point earlier, uh, uh, Nate, you know, there's a duplicity that takes place naturally. It's like bifurcation, you know, you compartmentalize like, well, you know, I don't really talk to anybody about my life. And how many men have you met when it comes to their sexuality? It's like if you, you say, well, how are you doing or, or, or where are you at with this? And they, they just get this blank look on their face and they're like, I don't know. And I'm like, what I realize is when they say that, they're actually being honest. They don't know. They don't have a language for that. And I find it ironic that the church will preach. We want to, we want to see guys grow spiritually. We want to see sanctification take place and and I, I've had to tell more and more uh, people who run men's, men's ministry is like, I hate to tell you, but I don't think men operate that way. In other words, this kind of glorified high big model where a guy comes in and he speaks for 45 minutes and everybody goes, wow, he really has his life together. Mm-hmm. I'm like, well, on Tuesday he did. Uh, you're, touching, <laughs> <laughs> you're touching on an important point, though, that's both in Samson and I think New Adam ratcheted that up. <laughs> quite a bit which is the shared vocabulary yes when you say okay this is this part of the meeting here are the words we use and don't use then it becomes safe i mean it's like dancing it's the worst thing to go dancing and you don't really know the steps and they start playing a swing song and you're like geez i know how to like stand there holding my wife's uh, hips and rocking to a slow song but this seems more complex like it's just embarrassing if you don't know the steps and this is just this is far more complex and vocabulary is the first way to teach those steps right it's interesting you say that because on the weekends with new adam where we teach men how to talk about their emotions 
many men are, they know how to do anger. They don't know how to do sadness. Mm-hmm. And when you, when a man really starts to enter into a place of mourning over his life and where it's at and the wounds that have caused him to get where he is and be where he is and other men sit and just listen, don't say anything, don't offer anything. They listen with empathy that is authentically embodied. I mean, this gets back to what does it look like? They always say, well, what, you know, what does it look like to repent? What does it look like to to walk in wholeness. And uh, that shared vocabulary, all of a sudden by the end of the weekend, it's funny how men then will start to be much more disclosive about where they're at at any given moment. Mm -hmm. And that needs to be shared between pastors and congregants. There's not a separate language for the ivory tower folks and and the, uh, the groundlings. (laughs) Then then it can be safe between them. There can be a flow between them. I do I do and I'm you're not, I'm not saying you're saying this. I do believe that it's a challenge for how pastors and worship leaders actually talk about their brokenness from the pulpit. There is a there is a I don't, the word propriety is not the word, but there there is an appropriateness that allows for truth to be told but for discretion and safety to be also part of it. And we're still learning what that looks like. And I think for some pastors, they're like, well, if, if I'm going to be honest, then I need to say and do it this way. And it's just like, well, why don't we just say that we're broken human beings and on any given week, my spirituality is vibrant and pathological simultaneously. Mm. <laughs> and, and, and for some people, they're like, well, how can that be? And it's like, I don't know. Ask God. He created me this way. <laughs> I just need people around me to protect me from hurting other people when I don't need to and uh, create a safe place for me to name um, when I'm feeling dangerous. Wow. I, and and I to be able to recognize when I'm dangerous, right? I don't see how any of this can happen if there's not a shared acknowledgement by both uh, the people who aren't on the stage and the people who are on the stage that there is no difference in the spirituality or the journey that that guy's on the stage because he can play a guitar and he's on the same walk as the person in the fifth row. It's the and, and both have access to hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit in their life equally. Because I don't see how any of this can happen unless everybody can admit that. And that seems so hard for us to admit. Well, especially when when uh, we mistake certitude for truth-telling. Uh, let me differentiate that. Certitude to me is when my persona and my ego, I want to claim that I know something and that, that my knowing it means that I um, walk in that integrity. But I can articulate a ton of truths that I don't even come close to walking in that integrity in my daily life. <laughs> we are educated way beyond our level of obedience. Oh, and, and given throw us into the theological realm. So I can get up and talk to people about God and the history of the church and say things that are really, really true. And if I have people telling me like, wow, that's so good and you said it so well and that's so creative. And then I go, yeah, I, I know that stuff really well. Now it's like, the epistemology of what? Is it the epistemology of God's heart or is it just information? And uh, I, I find that the church, especially portions of the church that want to honor scripture and truth, which I do too, 
they often make the assumption that my ability to articulate that truth with exactitude is a reflection of my character. Oh, that it were. I would love for that yes. to be the case. But it, I don't find it is in my life. We are going to pause for a moment for the listeners to now go get their dictionary off their shelf so that they can <laughs> translate some of the big words that David Bunker has just used. <laughs> we'll be back in a moment. <laughs> I, I love your vocabulary. It's beautiful. But yeah, yeah I, but I don't want to get off the point. Your point was, go ahead. You were going to say something, Nate. Hmm. Uh, no, you threw me, you threw me off. Aaron. But, <laughs> oh, it was, it was not worth it for a, just a witty moment. No. So he was oh, talking oh, about that, the Oh, that it were a witty certitude. moment. Yes. No, no. Uh, uh, <laughs> no, mistaking certitude for, for truth telling. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. man. And, and the difference between, uh, truth and, 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 and embodied truth. I don't know. Um, we'll even bring it back to the, the musical part of a Sunday morning. I remember one of my favorite worship songwriters, uh, he had five services that he had to play every Sunday morning. Wow. And, uh, we had three at our church and I asked him, I said, like, how do you like by the third service, I've now played these songs through rehearsal through two services. I'm kind of over it and it's hard to be engaged. And he looked at me with like confusion and said, really? I feel like by the fifth service, I'm just starting to believe what I'm saying. And I think that was such an amazing, uh, like he was just, it was so simple to him. Mm -hmm. But I think that speaks to the fact that I believe a lot of things, but I'm in process to them becoming true. And it's okay for me to say, I'm going to sing these words. I'm going to express these thoughts, but I know I'm not there yet, but I'm going to keep going in faith that it will become more and more. It's not an either or. I believe it or I don't believe it. I embody it or I don't. There's a whole lot of journeying between those two places that are also true. Oh, that's good. You know, I think about too how just the um – the egocentrism that comes with the idea that my spiritual condition on stage somehow is going to ameliorate the presence of God and everybody in the congregation. I mean, that he's depending solely upon me. How arrogant is that? And I think that's why some of the return to liturgy is taking place. I mean, I think about, we all know Kyle and I've had Kyle tell me, I mean, Kyle, I won't say his last name, but he grew up Baptist and all of a sudden now he's in a highly liturgical church and he'll tell me, I just love the liturgy and I'll, I'll ask him why and he'll unpack it. And uh, some of it is, is that so much of the early years he grew up, the preaching and the singing were so personality driven. It was mm -hmm. around a person. And this is the danger of raising up professional worship leaders and combining the uh, music industry and the fame that comes with that with positions in the church because those are, those are very, very confusing um, worlds and they can create um, a lot of uh, a world of pain for somebody when they feel like everybody responds to them. And then all of a sudden their impact in the popular culture begins to wane and nobody even wants to book them in their church. Like, right. well, did God leave the room or something? What happened? No, that didn't really have anything to do with God. That was all popular culture and fame and performance. And, um, you know, I wonder if we're unpacking that 
properly. I mean, I, I think about, you know, we talked about the, uh, the shared narrative that a, a, a weekend would have, the new Adam weekends or the retreats would have. And I think as much as people poo-poo therapy, I think if when therapy is really, for want of a better word, brought under the lordship of, of Christ, I think it can be a very informative um, process of revealing the parts of our shadow that we just don't know how to name very well. And I don't know if the church is necessarily it has to adapt that, but I find that when people will incorporate a portion of that, uh, whether it's in retreats, whether it's in spiritual direction, it allows people to 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 develop an understanding of how their shadow might manifest itself. You said earlier, Nate, like how do you spot that? And that's that's very interesting. I'm not saying I am getting I don't know if I'm getting better at spotting it or or if my brokenness is just more stupid as I get older I wish it wasn't you know I want to hear people say well I'm growing spiritually and I'm thinking I I don't know if that phrase of growing spiritually ever even works for me anymore mm-hmm. like in a sense of better than I was before <laughs> yeah but the the how to spot it demands community I was just reading uh, there was research done on self-awareness and uh, they, I won't get into the testing, but it was it was an interesting test, and at the end of the test, they found that ninety five percent of the people involved with the study believed they were self aware, and thirteen percent were actually self aware. And the way that they found that was based on how other people perceived them, where how much denial was in their life. But that's a huge difference between ninety five percent that are certain they're self aware. And only 13% got the same answers about themselves as the people closest to them. So how do I spot my, the shadow parts? Uh, I, pretty much the answer is I need to have somebody that knows me that's a trusted traveling companion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't think I get to spot it. It's not, it's not even within my developing toolkit for the most part. Right. I would agree. Yeah. It reminds me, you know, that I've seen the 80% of drivers rate themselves uh, in the top 20% of drivers. <laughs> uh, <laughs> hey, uh, you know what? This always happens with Bunker. Time freaking flies. And uh, we've covered all kinds of territory and opened a whole bunch of doors that I wish we, you know, a lot of rooms that we didn't spend a lot of time in. Uh, Dave, uh, I do want to know this. So you're making the move to Memphis. Uh, what's ha- what, yeah. What, what does it look like you're going to be doing down there? Uh, it looks as if I'm going to be running a, a record label. That's a part of a visible music college. And then I'm going to con- be continuing at least in the short term to be, uh, editing worship leader magazine. And I'm grateful to both the school and the magazine. So I'm going to be in the thick of, discipling artists and being discipled and hearing some good rock and roll. <laughs> All right. Uh, I hope you have it on your calendar, Dave, uh, to, to, to come to the uh, Samson Society weekend. We're about to put the announcement out first week in November, weekend in November, November two through four in middle Tennessee. Uh, and I, you came last year. You were such a great asset 
uh, last year. I'd love it if this year uh, you would consent to maybe doing a session just for worship leaders. I'll plan on it. I'll see if I can make it happen. It, it excites me because I, I totally uh, support Samson and uh, have seen the fruit of its ministry and uh, consider you and Aaron to be, you know, part of my family. Oh, man. Okay. Well, uh, in the meantime, if uh, artists, creative, worship pastors, anybody uh, would uh, feel the urge to get a hold of you, is there an easy way for them to get a hold of you, or should they do it through us? Oh, they could. Uh, David.bunker at visible.edu. David. B-U-N-K-E-R at visible.edu. Okay, fantastic. I'm just going to add to your pastoral load there, Dave. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's the way it goes. I, mean, I, I figure I might as well go out in flames. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, as always, what a stimulating conversation. What a great t- – thank you for making time for oh, us today, this Dave. Good. All right. Well, we'll be back with some closing thoughts in in just a moment here on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Pirate Monk podcast. That was, uh, it's always fun to have Bunker around. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We opened a whole bunch of doors. We talked about a whole bunch of stuff. I'm not sure. uh, You can't talk to to that man for less than like two hours. You're not, because it just gets so deep in so many directions. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So I guess that's just a teaser for things. But I do hope folks... Think through their own worship experience at church. That this is this is their special time, yeah. And the person on the stage is simply serving them, and they just know how to play an instrument. And God's given them some gifts, and that's cool. But it's not that special to be able to play a piano or strum a guitar. It's just a thing. So you're in it. It's your time with God within the community of Christ. Wow! Great closing words. Thanks, Aaron. Uh, well, I think we're going to record uh, one more episode before, or maybe a couple before I. No, I I leave on the 18th. That's uh, two weeks from yesterday. Oh yeah, yeah. More. So yeah, we're both coming up on going away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, but we do have, we will have another episode coming up next week. And until then, I'm Nate. 
And I'm the guy that's going to remind Nate to tell you to send us your questions and thoughts because we do want to <laughs> we do want to know what's in your minds. So send those, please, too. You're supposed to give the email. Pirate Monk Podcast. <laughs> yes, yes. It's it's Pirate Monk Podcast at gmail.com. All right. And I'm right. Aaron. And we are your pals on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Arg.